702. Googs is on Twitter at GooksM. It's 25 minutes after 9 o'clock. It is a Friday, which means we have the huge pleasure of hanging out with the South African doing great things. And this week, and it seems apt that on World AIDS Day, we speak to a GP with a special interest in HIV, particularly as a public health issue in this country, uh, Dr. Cindy Siwe-Fansel. You may know her from Twitter, which is where I met her, uh, where she uses Twitter in a very interesting way, almost to run a Twitter hospital with other um, healthcare professionals using social media to get information out, more importantly, and to educate people. And she joins us this evening to talk about her work, her special interest in HIV, perhaps also to pick a brain about where we are with um, dealing with the public health matter that is HIV and AIDS and, you know, what work we still need to do. And if you'd like to speak to Dr. Fansel, you can call us on 021-446-0567 and 011-883-0702. Dr. Fansel, hello. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for, for having me, Google. Thank you so much. So your uh, interest in um, HIV, where does that begin? Because you're, you're, you're a GP, but your special interest is in, is in HIV. Yes. So that started in about 2006. Um, I was doing my internship at Bara. And you know, obviously, I'm telling the story in hindsight because at the time I didn't know that I'd end up working, you know, working in the field of HIV. Mm-hmm. But the, you know, all the death and despair that I saw at Bara really had a, um, an effect on me. And um, after my community service, um, I was I was headhunted by Dr. Toba Kamunyani, and she worked at ANOVA, an HIV NGO that was, you know, you know, working with the Department of Health in so in Soweto. So we started working on the HIV program. For, for mothers who are, um, you know, pregnant and living with HIV. And that's really where my interest was sparked. And, um, yeah, and I've been working in the field of HIV ever since. I mean, I still, I mean, now that I'm in the private sector, I still see patients, you know, that are not HIV positive, but mm. the majority of patients I see are people that are living with HIV. Mm. And, um, and South Africa has got one of the best HIV programs, you know, in the world, as far as I'm concerned. I think we've made great strides in terms of um, where we've come you know, how far we've come as a program mm. and also the, the medication on offer. Um, we have a long way to go, obviously, because we have the highest number of people that are living with HIV in the world mm. and we're not, we don't have everyone on treatment. So that's still something that's, you know, obviously top of our minds, but we're working on it and we're getting somewhere. Mm. But um, in terms of progress, we've done really, really well. So we speak about people living with HIV and then we speak about people who are on treatment. And I believe our numbers of people living with HIV is about 7 million. Is that correct? Exactly, yeah. It's around 7.1 million from the 1996 um, UN AIDS stats. And obviously people on treatment, I think it's just over 3 million. So we're just over 50%. We're not there yet. And um, the problem is that... Look, a lot of people aren't aware of the fact that they're living with HIV, and I and I and I'm primarily speaking about males. Okay, so because women access um, healthcare more frequently than males do, mm-hmm. um, you know we're able to screen them and test them. So if you come in, you know we offer you a test, and we, we know that okay, you're HIV positive. We know what to do. But males don't don't access treatment as 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 frequently as women do, and that's the problem. You know, I think um, a lot of men do what I call proxy testing, where 
if their partner is, um, you know, she's given birth and she's breastfeeding, as far as they're concerned, uh, she's breastfeeding, she's fine, she's HIV negative, there's no need for me to test. And we need to change that, 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 that way of thinking. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're alive and you're sexually active, you need to know your status. You mm-hmm. need to test for yourself and you need to have a documented test of your, of your HIV, um, you know, of your HIV test. So um, I really encourage men to just go out there, be brave and get tested. At least if we know your status, we know what to do. We know how to help you. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know your status, then there's no way of helping you. And mm-hmm. that's really the tragedy that faces us in South Africa at the moment. So when we speak about, and, and I guess we'll need different languages for speaking to men and women, in the mm-hmm. past, how have we spoken about getting tested? Have we been targeting women? Has the message just landed with women more? Or is it about because I'll go and get myself checked out uh, because I'm pregnant or it's my, uh, you know, uh, my regular visit to the gynecologist, then mm-hmm. I'll do all the other work. How is it that we seem to be struggling with men? You know what? I think the way our, our, our health system is structured, it's very, um, it's, it's I'm not sure that it's it's very male friendly, and I think this took me a very long time to accept. It took me a long time to to actually look at the look at the health system and see that it's not very male friendly. Mm-hmm. It really isn't. I mean, you get to a clinic, and um, it's, it's, it's you know primarily it's, it's it's women running the system and so on. And I had never really thought about the fact that if you're a guy and you get there and you see a nurse that's that's on duty and she happens to be your wife's cousin's friend how does it affect you as a as in mm. and anonymity and the fact that confidentiality is not always guaranteed is the biggest problem you know so so look i, I do a lot of social media and work with hiv and a lot of the people that message me are concerned about the fact that if i go to clinic a i'll bump into cindy oh, cindy knows my wife and and she'll tell my cousin oh positive that person or the next person and so on and so on mm. and things do happen okay these things do happen we are human beings and we're not, we're not perfect so anonymity seems to be the thing that that men men are most concerned about and I understand that you know if you go for a test at a, at a government clinic you want to know that your test stays between your test results stays between the counselor and yourself and yes. not always guaranteed it's, it's it's written down it's theoretical we know that it should happen it doesn't always happen mm. and that's really where i think the department of health could strengthen could strengthen um you know processes what's been interesting following you and watching the way you use social media is the kinds of questions or the kinds of um a request for information people have so yeah. I think for a long time, because we spent so much time in the early 90s, early 2000s on awareness and education campaigns, there's this idea that we know. Um, you know, we were told about the ABCs. We were told about mm-hmm. be wise, condomize. I was part of the 2010 generation where we were told, you know, make it to 2010 and see the World Cup in your country. We were also yeah. called, you know, we could be the first AIDS-free generation. And mm-hmm. so there was a lot put in uh, in terms of mass education, so educating as many people as possible. Yeah. But what's interesting, and maybe this was also maybe taken for granted, and you can correct me, is people with access to information, so who are accessing the internet, still having questions about stuff I would think we dealt with, say, 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, and, and, that, and that's the thing, because I mean, I started doing social media work in 2011, and I think... Uh, look, people people know the social media and and the work that I do saved my life. I was I was in a very 
dark place and it saved my life. And I honestly thought that, oh man, after three years, you know, the information will be out there. I won't be doing this anymore. Here we are, six years down the line, and I'm still doing this. And I took it for granted that um, the information that we put out there is not all going to get to everybody, mm-hmm. and there'll still be questions to be asked. So over the years, um, the, the messaging has changed. I mean, at the beginning, I've given very basic information about what is HIV, what you need to do, and what what is treatment. And now it's become more it's, it's become more sophisticated. I mean, I mean, we're talking about um, U equals U, undetectable equals untransmittable. People want to know what does it mean? What does it mean that um, that my viral load is undetectable? What is a viral load? What are we talking about? What is what is lifelong? antiretroviral treatment. What does that mean for me as, as a person? What does it mean for me in a relationship and mm. so on? So I'm so glad that, um, you know, as the information comes out and it's more, it's more um, advanced, people are also, you know, keeping up and, and, and asking more advanced questions. The sad part for me is the fact that I'm still doing this, Google, and I mean this, I mean this in, in the best possible way. If you go to a healthcare facility, I expect that when you leave that place, you know exactly what needs to happen, you know exactly what needs to be done, mm-hmm. and you can get home and make a plan without having to message, message me and say, so, 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 so. I'm still a bit confused, can you please help me out? I, I want to phase that out. I am actually trying to work myself out of a job, right? Mm-hmm. I, want, I want healthcare um, professionals in the public sector and in the private sector, you know, for that matter, to make sure that when someone comes to you and they and they have questions and so on, when they leave your room, make sure they have all the information they need to make informed decisions. When I started this whole thing, I was in a very dark place. I was angry, and I I, I didn't know what to do with, with you know with my anger. Someone directed me and was, and I was like, Cindy, you know what? Instead of being so angry, why don't you use you know, all this energy that you have and educate us. And that's really where it began in 2011. I don't want to do this forever. So this is really a plea for healthcare professionals. Ability. Look at the way you interact with people and make sure you do the right thing the first time around. Sometimes, you know, we don't, we don't get the opportunity to, to, to see someone over and over again. You know, sometimes you only see a person guy one. And make sure that your, your interaction with that person is meaningful, it is important, you know, it's impactful and a person can go away and make the right decisions for their health. Hmm. Have we, um, how well are we doing with myths? Because I mean, for a long time, part of uh, information and awareness campaigns was about dealing with myths and yeah. rumors and misinformation, mm. which we know, I mean, happens. We see it in politics. We see it in, yeah. so, uh, and health is where we also see a lot of misinformation. Usually you get mm. it from so-and-so or you heard from, you know, wherever you get a WhatsApp message. How well are we doing with that? Or have they, or do we have new myths now? You know what? Look, over the past six years, I've seen an evolution. I think people are beginning to, beginning to understand what HIV is and what it isn't. The thing that still doesn't go away, obviously, is the whole myth around, around um, you know, HIV was made in a laboratory. It was created to, 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 to wipe out, you know, um, people. Look, so this is my thing. I've got, a, I've, got a, I've got a way of dealing with that. Okay, even if the virus was made in a lab and someone decides to wipe away, to wipe, to wipe out Abandabamiyama, there is a cure out there. We know that there's a cure out there. I want you alive for the cure. So we know we can, just, we can debate theories, we can debate conspiracy theories, I don't mind that, but just make sure you're on treatment, you're virally suppressed, I want you alive 
when the treat when the, when the cure for HIV arrives. Mm. So look, I de- I debate all the time. <laughs> I don't know, I don't necessarily do it on the timeline because I don't really want to go there. But my patients know I am open to 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 listening to what you have to say and what you think about um, HIV conspiracy theories. But obviously, with all the work that I've done, I must say I've seen. Um, a change in the way people approach the idea of HIV and treatment. And you know what, Google? Um, people, you look, you're entitled to believe whatever you want to believe. I, I have no problems with that. Just take your medication, stay alive until the cure arrives. Joined on the line by Dr. Cindy Sirefansel. She is our South African doing great things, a GP with a special interest in HIV. And someone's name you've probably, if you're active on social media, you've seen on your timeline before. And we're speaking to her about her work, her interest in public health, specifically with HIV and AIDS. And it being World AIDS Day, if you have any questions for the good doctor, you can call us on 021-446-0567 and 011-883-0702. You can also send us your WhatsApp messages and your voice notes to the 702 WhatsApp number. That's on 072-702-1702. Uh, that number again, 072-702-1702. 702. Night Talk. Call Gugs Mushungu. On 011-883-0702. 20 minutes before 10 o'clock, you are still on Night Talk, the Friday edition on 702 and Cape Talk with me, Gugs Mushungu. Our South Africans doing great things this week is Dr. Cindy Fansel, a doctor with a special interest in HIV who's also using social media and digital technology in a very interesting way to shift related knowledge and to inform uh, people using social media. Dr. Fonsell, an interesting SMS here from Karabo. See if I can find it. On 31702 saying, my takeaway from Dr. Cindy's interviews is that if you take your treatment regimen regimen religiously, Mm. you can uh, can town without fear. That's from Karabo. (laughs) <laughs> that's true that's true so there's a new concept um um u equals u which is um un- undetectable equals undable and this is really what i'm using now to keep you know to, to motivate people to start treatment and stay on treatment so if you start taking a lifelong treatment and your viral load the number of hiv copies in your blood is undetectable then you don't have to use um, um, protection anymore because we now know from the research that the, the, the results are overwhelming that if you're taking treatment and your viral load is undetectable, you can't transmit um, HIV to your partner. And this is really life-changing, Google, because as you know, um, a lot of couples um, have had to deal with um, you know, using condoms and so on over the years, especially couples where they see a difference. One partner is negative and one partner is positive. Mm-hmm. And here we are saying that, you know what, guys? If the positive partner is in treatment, then there's no need for you guys to use, to use condoms anymore. So it's, it's life-changing. I've been spreading the message far and wide. It's a pity that the Department of Health hasn't really... Um, look, they know, they know the message is out there. They haven't been spreading it as much as I'd like them to. Um, it's life-changing. And I'm very happy to share that information with everybody that needs to know it. Okay, so, I mean... Uh, so I want to touch on what we mean by undetectable, mm-hmm. but also perhaps the reluctance from our department, because, I mean, one of the big things we see a challenge with is yeah. people condomizing as kind of a rule. So having uh, mm. safe sex. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so perhaps then is there not a concern from the department? And I mean, there have been quite a few criticisms of the department of all that it's quite conservative. And a lot of it has to do with where we get our money from and a lot of it has to do with, you know, American funders who give us our money and, you know, what they want to hear. But um, is there not a concern that will start muddling the message that 
um, you know, yes, we must condomize, and that's why we've made this huge investment in um, the new Max condoms, which are less yeah. noisy, they smell less rubbery, they're a lot more yeah. comfortable, they're, you know, because to try and deal with the issue of condom fatigue. So now when we speak about undetectable as untransmittable, is that not maybe part of the anxiety or the worry that we might some conflicting messages in in a world it's not just society where people are really looking to avoid using condoms anyway mm. well you know what i mean look we're taking advantage of the advantage of science I'm, i mean I, i'm 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 grateful that we're in this era where if if we were to use cars as an analogy the medication we have right now is like a bentley of 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 a medication so we're taking advantage of what science has afforded us and it's fine to say to us, guys, we've done the, we've done the research. We've, we've, we've researched over 15,000 couples. If you're on treatment, you can't transmit the virus. Then let's, 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 let's work with that. Let's work with that. Because we know that condoms are a schlep. And we need to use condoms. And um, there's a place for them. But we say to couples that, okay, if you are on treatment and you're taking it very well, then somewhere along the line you can abandon the use of condoms. And obviously, I'm not saying this like willy-nilly. I think people need to sit down and have conversations. You need to know your partner's status. You need to discuss this as a couple or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, whatever the situation is, and then, and then work with that. And look, in the last six months, I've been really pushing this message. And the, the relief on people's faces, the fact that you don't have to do um, in, in vitro fertilization to have a baby. You guys can, can try for a baby naturally. It's just been phenomenal to watch. The fact that I can say to them, you know what, just trust me on this. Let's try for a baby with, without IVF, without sperm washing, and let's see what happens. And uh, I'm, I'm happy. I'm in a very good place as far as U equals U is concerned. And I understand where the DOH is coming from, but science is science. The research is out there. The results are there. Let's work with what we have. Let's take advantage of what science has afforded us. So basically, science is telling us about the benefits of getting on treatment and then staying on treatment. Because that's what I'm hearing is this is about exactly. if you are someone who's on antiretroviral treatment, this mm-hmm. could be the potential benefit of starting and then staying on treatment. Exactly. And that's, and that's what I'm using. I'm using this as, a, as an incentive, especially for the male clients, because you can imagine for them, condom issues are, are you know, look, some men can't maintain an erection. They can't even achieve an erection when, you know, when, when condoms are brought into the picture. So I'm saying, to them, okay, Papa, you know what? Let's, let's, do, let's do six months of treatment. Let's make sure you're virally suppressed. Once your viral load is less than 40 or undetectable, then you can abandon condoms altogether. And my patients are so excited about this. They're, they're, like, they're counting down. Oh, doctor, okay, when's the three-month exam? Okay, when's the, when the six-month exam? They're very excited about this. And I'm happy to be using that as an incentive for people to stay on their treatment. And um, let's not underestimate the effect that, some, that condoms has on some people. Um, it took me a while to realize that some, some people really cannot work their heads around condoms. At the beginning, I was like, uh-uh, when are you being funny? You're just being, you know, you're being dramatic. Mm. But over the years, you know, the 10 years that I've been working in HIV, I realized, it would be okay, for some people, condoms are just a no-no. And I'm not sure if it's because of the way HIV was introduced into the country mm-hmm. or they have, you know, mental baggage or, you know, psychological baggage around it. But some people just cannot use condoms. And I've come to accept that. And now we work around that. And we use U equals U as an incentive to make things easier. So U equals U, is that possible for anyone, everyone on everyone, treatment? Everyone, everyone. The research is out there. The stats are out there. The, the, the information is overwhelming. And that's why I feel the Department of Health is not, is not they haven't 
they haven't run with this as much as I'd like them to. And I understand. I, I think RDOH is very conservative. I think Omen Samuzwaledi and his team are a bit on the conservative side and mm-hmm. they don't want to, they don't, they don't think you want to promote what they perceive as, as recklessness. And it's okay. That's how they are. But for the rest of us who understand what U equals U means and, we, and we've seen the impact of it, we're out here, we're promoting the message, and I want people to know that if you're undetectable, you're untransmittable. So the, when you speak about condoms and how to uh, get people to use them, particularly because we're still putting a lot of effort into that. I mean, we've done mm. this investment into the Max condoms. and w- Is it younger men is it older men is it across the board and i mean you can only work with your sample mm, but mm. where where are the challenges is it in younger couples older couples is it just across the board as a country we have a challenge i think it's across the board i think it's across the board as a country i mean look I'll, I'm, I'm in the private sector so the stats that i'm the, the, the demographics that I'm dealing with are very different from what i was dealing with in the, in the public sector but it's, it's across the board i think um South Africa has to be very honest about the approach. You know, we've tried abstinence, we've tried the condomines, we've tried all of those things. It hasn't really worked. So let's, let's work with science and let's see how we can we can resolve issues. And I, I'm, I'm going to bring something up. Okay, and I'm going to speak about intergenerational sex, blesses and blessies. Mm-hmm. This is a perfect opportunity for us to use the information we have to, to decrease the infection rate in that in that in that in that scenario. So we know with okay, amongst a certain age group and women, there's a very high HIV infection rate and it doesn't correlate with the same infection rates in, in, in guys of the same age group. And it's because of intergenerational sex. Older guys sleeping with younger girls and vice versa. Mm-hmm. What do you need to do? We need to say to ourselves, because, okay, we know that this is happening. We can't change that. We can't, we can't preach morality from a platform. What we can do is say to the blessed, okay, as a teenager, we know that you guys are doing this and we can't, we can't force you to change that. What we want you guys to do is to test for HIV. If you're positive, let's get you on treatment and get your viral load undetectable. If you're negative, let's put you on pre-exposure prophylaxis to protect you from HIV infection. And I believe that that's the approach that we should have towards uh, um, the, you know, the blesser blessee scenario. Instead of burdening the blessees and telling them, okay, well, now you know you must, you must go to school, don't accept money from older men, and so on and so forth. Blesser blessee situations have been happening for as long as I can remember, right? Mm-hmm. It won't change overnight. But I feel the witty. We have an opportunity to sort things out in terms of, 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 of infection rates by taking advantage of what science has given us. And each Department of Health should be taking the lead as far as I'm concerned. I'm, I'm not dragging there. I'm just saying they should be taking the lead in all of this and, and saying, okay, bless us, let's teach you guys, let's put you guys out, and let's work with this. Is it mean, happening? Is, no. is that where Test and Treat came from? Because last year when yeah. um, the department announced the, the campaign... In that, September. Mm, yeah, mm. That, and part of it, they said, was about getting older men, uh, particularly yeah. older men who sleep with younger women, uh, mm. to get onto treatment as soon as possible, which then obviously has benefits for their, their uh, sexual partners as well. Yeah. I mean, it's still early days. It's only been a year, but are we seeing gains from test and treat? So it's only been a year in South Africa, Google, and everywhere else it's been longer than that. So that's what I'm saying. With the Department of Health, it takes a very long time to... They're they late adopters. For some reason, our Department of Health is a late adopter. When the, when the theory, when the, when the results come in from other countries, which would be 
that because we have the highest number of people living with HIV, we should be running with the things that are presented to us. But UTT, Universal Test and Treat, is something that that helps to reduce the community viral load. So if we have as many people on, on treatment with, a, with an unjettable viral load, we are effectively reducing the number of infections, right? And, and, and so I'm now extrapolating this to the blesser scenario. Which, okay, get all the blessers in one place. We know where they hang out. We know where to find them. <laughs> Speak to them. Get them tested. Go to Pigal. No, wherever we have to go. Go, go there. Go to Cubana. <laughs> go where you must. <laughs> go there. Do the campaigns. Get them on treatment. Sort them out. Protect their partners and protect their blessies. And we should see a difference in the stats. And and this is where I feel the DOH should be taking the lead. But for some reason, it's not happening. And it's okay. I'm not going to blame them. I'm not going to drag them. I'm going to share the information that blessees and blessers need to protect themselves and get things going. Is it still awkward, difficult, weird to talk about sex, particularly sex positivity because part of the other thing that we i think is happening is even you know the you um undetectable means untransmittable uh, mm-hmm. is to talk about sex as a thing that happens that people do mm-hmm. young and old and to say <laughs> then if we're going to do this because we're doing it and we do it a lot um how do we do it safely without harm to ourselves yeah. harm to our partners is it still difficult to talk about sex it is. It is. I mean, look with me, with the older, with the older patients, and I, and I say this because I gave an example at a meeting about this. The older women are very difficult to speak to. So over the years, I've learned to to ask questions in a very roundabout manner. So, you know, and, I, and I'll give exam, an example that I give all the time. Sixty-five year old woman. I saw her at Midland Clinic. She comes in. I ask her, "Mama, are you in a relationship?" No, her husband died a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, "Okay, and she was saying, no, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. So I was able to have a conversation with this woman and without mentioning the word sex or intercourse or condoms. A or boyfriend. Anything, a boyfriend. I was able to, to get information out of her and make, and, and make sure that she's, she's, she's on treatment, she's very suppressed, and that her and her partner, you know, have, have, have you know, intercourse without risking each other's lives. Mm. And, yeah, and this is something that I've had to learn over the years. But you can imagine if you, if you meet a clinician, they say, okay, mama, are you having sex? And she says no. Say no. Mm, because her husband said, died 15 years ago. Exactly. So we have to be very sensitive to cultural and, 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 and age-related issues. So Umgani, in her context, is a friend. She visits her friends mm. once a month and they chat or, you know, that's, that's exactly what she said, mm-hmm. and I, I knew exactly what she meant. Uklegisana is obviously to have sex. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, clinicians need to be sensitive to that. And I, and I really urge, you know, clinicians to, to think about that when, you, when you're asking, when you're taking a sexual history. It's not the, it's not the easiest thing to, to take a sexual history. Then you have to ask about anal sex or, you know, um, how many partners do you have and so on. It's not easy, but it has to be done. If we're going to help the country get to you equals you, we need to ask the uncomfortable questions. Mm, but do it in a way, I guess, that we can get answers. So Exactly, exactly. I mean, being brash and so on, look, it, it, it's, it's got a place, but it doesn't work for everybody. So the moment you build a barrier between you and your client, you're not going to get the answers that you need. Mm. It seems, though, when you, I mean, even in the way you speak about giving information or giving, um, you know, uh, or assisting your clients, that there's a level of, not empathy, not, but almost a, um, 
a level of care. So I, mm. I actually want you to get the best possible care, which means I need to use, you know, whatever method I, I can to get the information. Because someone would say, you know, so I'll ask Gogs, are you sexually active? And if she says, yeah. no, that's it. Or are you in a relationship? And you go, and I say no, and you say, well, that's it. As opposed to asking, you know, do you have a sexual partner, even if you're not yeah. in a relationship with them? So it, it almost expects, you know, healthcare workers to do a little bit more work but how possible is that in, we know our patient ratio is quite high, yeah. um, you know, the public health care system has um, got a lot of demands on it. How possible is it for someone to then speak to Googs in a way that you are going to get the most amounts of information, which means you can give the best possible yeah. care when there are hundreds of people waiting to see you? Oh, when we first started this program, and, and this is in Soweto, you know, we, we trained the nurses and I remember saying to the nurses that all I want is to make clones of myself in you guys. And I want you guys to do the right thing the first time around. It hasn't happened. It hasn't panned out the way that we expected. And only because when you expand the program the way the sweater program has expanded and, and everything else, you will see, a, 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 you know, a decrease in the quality of the program. And obviously there'll be a focus more on the numbers. Um, it's an individual thing, you know, and... I mean, if I, if I look at my tweets and the things that I say, I think I'm always trying to appeal to the individual, which as a team, you know the right thing to do. Because the truth of the matter is that if a, if, a, if a nurse or a doctor in the system has a relative that needs help, they will go all out for their relatives. There's no you know, argument around that. I've had nurses phone me at 2 o'clock in the morning, Dr. Cindy, my sister is sick, can you please help out? And we help out. So I always, one of the mantras that I adopted when I was in medical school, and this was in second year, um, under Professor Prozeski, I was like, you know what? Professor Prozeski said to us, find something that you're going to hang on to when, when the going gets tough. And my thing was like, you know what? I'm going to treat every patient as if they were my relative. Because if your aunt is sick or your mom is sick and so on, you go all out. Mm. So my thing is, if you're working in the healthcare, you know, the healthcare field, choose to go all out for every patient. And that's exactly what I do. It's not easy. I've been burnt out. You guys all know my journey with depression. It's taxing. But just think to yourself, if this was my aunt or my granny or my cousin or my sister, would I do things differently? Yes, you would. You would. There's no two ways about it. Mm. So that's what I'm asking healthcare professionals to do for every person that comes along their way. Mm. Just do the right thing the first time around and things will become easier. It doesn't always work out like that. I know it doesn't always happen like that. And that's why I'm still on social media. I'm still getting DMs. I'm still getting emails and I'm still doing things behind the scenes because not everyone feels that they should do, you know, they should go all out for everybody. Mm. But that's my mantra. That's how I work. And that's how I encourage medical, whenever medical students ask me, you know, what's the future? How should I operate? How should I work? I always say to them, Treat everyone as if they were your relatives and you'll find it easier to make sure that the right things are done the first time around. There's no time to dilly dally. You know, some people might have borrowed their last 10 rand to get to the clinic and when you're busy running around and doing the wrong things, there's no time for that. You only have one chance with some patients. Mm, and we need right to get it right first time. time. Exactly. So that's my mantra and that's how I've worked since I graduated. It, it's taxing. It's a lot of work, but I think it's, 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 it's helped the people 
people that needed to help. Dr. Cindy, I'm going to want to steal a little more of, of your time after the latest eyewitness news. And I want to touch on you and how you've spoken about, uh, you know, dealing with your depression and then, you know, how, because I think that's another big part of how you view social media is to, you mm. know, share quite a lot of yourself. And I want to touch on that uh, on the other side of the latest eyewitness news. But we're joined on the line by Dr. Cindy Sirafansel. She's our South Africans doing great things, a GP with a special interest in HIV. And if you'd like to speak to her, give us a shout, 021-446-0567. O double one eight eight three O seven O two. Night Talk on 702, your number one news and talk station. Five minutes past 10 o'clock, you are still on Night Talk, the Friday edition on Cape Talk and 702 with me, Gorgs and Plungo. Good to be with you. And of course, it is the third and final hour of the show, which means we take your calls on 021-446-0567 and 011-883-0702. We also take your SMSs. That's on 31567 and 31702. Still joined on the line by our South Africans doing great things for this week. Um, Dr. Um, and I think someone who can call themselves a social media influencer, Dr. Cindy Sirofansel, joins us uh, this evening. And we're seeing a little bit more of her time um, uh, as part of our conversation for this week. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can call us, send us an SMS or a WhatsApp on the 702 WhatsApp hotline on 0727021702. Dr. Fonsell, we got an SMS from someone who says, I'm an HIV AIDS coordinator. Uh, South mm-hmm. Africa adopted the 1990 strategy, which mm-hmm. focuses on getting the virus undetectable. It says, I personally agree that if the virus is undetectable, people should stop using condoms. Saying mm-hmm. condoms not only protect us from HIV infection, there's STIs and uh, pregnancy prevention as well. It also says it can be risky if a person forgets their treatment. One needs to be highly disciplined, faithful and committed to religiously taking uh, treatment. This message may mm. be re- uh, relevant to some people in solid and stable relationships, but saying we need to consider our adolescent and young people too. Mm. Mm. So adolescents, are, look, I, I have a very big challenge with adolescents. I think the, the, the ones that I see were born with HIV. And um, um, disclosure of their status has happened later in life. And so here you are telling a 14-year-old that, listen, Yes, I know that you're a virgin. I know you've never had sexual intercourse. And LO, life orientation skills, tells you that HIV is transmitted primarily in a, in a, in a sexual manner and you're now HIV positive. And many times, those, those adolescents have lost their parents. They're living with caregivers and they, they don't have anyone to lash out at. They're not, they, don't have, they don't have a person that they can be angry at. So the teens are a very big challenge. Um, you know, we have to, I think we have to change the way we, we teach in our in our schools. I think LO has to have a strong element of PMTCT, prevention of mother-to-child transmission, and also the reality around the fact that there was an era in our history where pregnant moms didn't get the treatment they needed to protect their babies from being born with HIV. Like, we're into a dark phase. There's no choice about it. We can't deny it. And I think this has to be part of the history and, and part of the teaching in the school so that kids who are born with HIV can understand how it happened. Um, and, and this will really help us going forward. But yes, I do have a large number of, well, not large, but I have quite a number of, of teens who are born with HIV who have never had sexual intercourse and they struggle with the concept of the fact that they're HIV positive hmm. because this, as far as they understand, this is a sexually transmitted infection. Hmm. And in yeah. speaking to teens, children, I mean, there's always the question of when is it appropriate, particularly with a country like ours, yeah. Where seven, just over seven million people are living with HIV, mm-hmm. um, and you know the questions around when do we start speaking to children about consent, about yeah. sexual assault, 
I mean, when you have, you know, parents ask the question, what advice do you give them? Because there's also the idea that some things are just not age appropriate. Yeah. So how do we have the conversation with and children about sex, um, about consent, about, uh, you know, their body, their physical autonomy, all of those things, which perhaps we thought were for when you're a little bit older? Yeah, look, it's really difficult for us. I think my mantra is eight is too late. So if you haven't started speaking to Charles about sex and, and, and stuff around the age of eight, then you're going to be in a bit of a, you know, you're going to have a spot of trouble because they're going to hear about sex in the playground. And um, if you now broach the subject and the child is 14, they've already heard from their friends what sex is. And then they say to you, ah, mama, I already know. Please stop embarrassing me and they're going to walk away. So the sooner you start, the better. And obviously, you use age-appropriate terms. So, for example, in my household, Marnie and Nandi, um, Nandi's nine, Marnie is six. Um, a penis, the penis of vagina is a vagina. That's, that's, that's where we started at the age of around four. And we've, we've expanded on concepts over, over the years. It's not easy. Believe you me, I, I can never preach something I haven't tried. It's not easy at all, but it has to be done. And one of the things that I feel is a great icebreaker for parents is stranger danger. Okay, so my kids know that anything below your shoulder, your, your, your collarbones is out of bounds for a stranger. So you, we've worked our way down. So, you know, you get to the nipples, you speak about the breast, you get to the belly button, and then you get to the vagina or the penis, you speak about that. So for parents, I think... Stranger danger, it's a very good, um, you know, icebreaker to discuss sexual organs, call everything by its name, no nicknames for penises or no nicknames for vaginas, and get your child to speak about, 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 about all of these things. Um, and eight, 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 eight o'clock, age of eight is a very good age to start talking about these things. And look, I know that many parents are conservative. They don't think that um, eight is an appropriate age. Mm. You want to wait, wait until the child is 14. And I'm saying to you that the way I've approached this is, I'd rather have my kids know from me, their mom, that this is what sex and sexuality and all of those things are about. Whatever else they hear in the playground, they can then compare to what I've, I've, I've told them and come and ask mama, to mama, okay, I heard this, is it true or false? Mm. But for them to have the playground as their only source of information, for me, that was problematic. I was like, you know what, let me be the source of the correct information and then everything else is hearsay and they can compare and contrast. But let not let, 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 let's not have other kids being the source of your child's you know information around sex, mm. and that's my approach. So, stranger danger is a very good icebreaker for parents that feel that they can't approach um, you know the subject of sex and, and and stuff with their children. Are schools a good place to learn about sex, um, sexuality, HIV and AIDS, consent? You know what? I mean, our teachers are also parents, and some teachers really struggle with LO. I've heard of cases where teachers refuse to teach a subject, so we can't abdicate our responsibility to teachers. They're also human beings. They've also got their issues. And yes, it's not meant to be like that, but unfortunately it is. We come from a very strange society where, you know, we've got the highest rate of HIV, but, you know, we can't speak about HIV. We can't speak about sex and, and things like that. So that's just how South Africa is. We can't run away from that. So we can't, as parents, leave everything to teachers to be teaching LO. Some teachers don't want to teach LO. They really don't. And it's okay. That's your decision. And, and that's how they're going to live their lives. Hmm. So Tina, as parents and caregivers, we have a responsibility to make sure that something is coming from us. It's not easy. And I've given tips and hints and so on. We need to make an effort. We need to try and be the ones that are speaking, you know, about sex and consent and all of those things to our kids before they hear from everyone else, because they are going to hear 
there's smartphones, there's WhatsApp, there's, there's pornography, there's YouTube. Our kids know. Doesn't matter how you feel, doesn't matter how naive you want to choose, you, you want to be, how you choose to be, your children know about sex. We can't run away from that. And then, I mean, one of the things you touched on is one of the, well, part of the reason uh, you got onto social media and used it in the way that you have almost, I think you called it at some point or a couple of years ago, Twitter Hospital, with a few other uh, medical practitioners, medical professionals on social media was, you say you were in a a particularly dark place and you were dealing Mm. with um, being depressed. Yeah. And I mean, this is another area where I think it seems like we're making progress, but are we really making progress. I mean, how we speak about mental illness. I mean, watching the Life is Dimeni uh, tragedy, the arbitration. Yeah. I mean, at the core of it is about, you know, how we treat people mm-hmm. who have mental illness. Um, and are we making progress there? Oh, we've, oh, Google, we've made a lot of progress. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's like that people are able to come out and say that, okay, I'm living with bipolar and mood disorder. I'm living with depression. We've made so much progress. And, and I mean, there's even a platform, Mental Wealth um, ZA, We've made so much progress. I think when I came out in 2014, it's because Robin Williams had committed suicide. And I realized in 2010, I have a story to tell. I told my story. And from there, I think more and more people have been telling these stories. So I'm very happy with the progress that we've made. Look, we can't change certain things. I think the church still struggles with um, mental illness. And I think that's, you know, that, that's a whole show on its own where we tackle the church's issues with mental illness. Um, I think Mental Wealth did a in, in the last year or so has been a fantastic tool for people to discuss their medication. Okay, I'm on um, bipolar medication. I'm on this, and I'm, I'm I'm struggling with this. And people come together, they encourage each other. People discuss these side effects. It's really been fantastic to watch. So I think in South Africa we've made a huge, huge, um, 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 you know, we've made a huge move in terms of dealing with mental illness. I think a lot of people still don't want to go there. So there's still a lot of DMing happening, happening and people not coming out on the timeline. And that's okay. That's okay. Not everyone has to come out and be as open as I've been with my journey with depression. Hmm. But we are making progress. The church, that's a topic for another day. I think one day you must, you, we must have a whole you know, a whole segment dedicated to how the church deals with, 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 with mental illness. And I speak from personal experience where my mom and my aunt were praying for me in time, they were anointing me with oil. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with doing all of those things. But we need to accept that not everything can be prayed away. Some things need either an intervention, whether it's medication or, or psychotherapy and so on, and there's no one with seeking those interventions. Mm. That you can't pray everything away. And this is really what saved me from from you know, from from a very dark place. Mm. Doctor Cindy, if someone's looking to find you in your private practice, where do you work and i mean so if and where what should people come to specifically for are there any specific areas that you deal okay. with so three things so the three things that i'm really passionate about where i'll, I'll you know i'll give you the best service that that, that that i can give is obviously hiv especially um you know pregnant women that are, that are living with hiv i've got a special interest in mental illness so i'm very i'm very good at that and obviously weight loss because over the past Three years or so, I've been you know, on a weight loss journey and I've been banting. So I'm, I'm only banting medical practitioner, which is difficult to find. So those three things, those three areas, if you, if you want to get hold of me, you can find me on Twitter, at Cindy Fansale, and all my details are in my, in my bio. But those are three areas where I really want to make a difference in South Africa. Dr. Cindy, thank you so much for joining us this evening. And thank you for, I think, what is fantastic work that you're doing through, um, through your profession. 
Thank you so much, Guku. Thank you for having me on your show, and I really appreciate it. That's Dr. Cindy Van Sale joining us this evening, our South African doing great things.